Hi, welcome to Canna Confidential. I'm your host, Jewel Peter, and on this podcast, we discuss the state of the cannabis industry, as well as any insights we feel might be valuable to our listeners. So without further ado, we'll get to the content. Thanks for joining us. Okay, hello, everyone. Today, we're going to talk about uh, some updates globally, as well as some progress in Ontario. And we're also going to talk about why there is still so much room in the legal market. And this is something that we've been hearing on and off from people pretty much from the beginning. And LPs are now trying to tell everybody that they have enough product to uh, sustain the demand. But as craft growers, we just know that that's not true. And the reason that that's not true is because anybody who has experience with any of the LP products knows that the quality is nowhere near what uh, craft consumers are expecting. And it's also not going to meet uh, the demand of cannabis connoisseurs that are up and coming. So people that haven't used cannabis, but are quickly becoming uh, enthusiasts of a quality product. Can I just say something right here before you go too far into this? Um, today, or no, yesterday, um, somebody that I know sent me a video. Uh, her husband is a grower, and she sent me a video of he occasionally buys um, from from an online legal source, the Ontario Cannabis Store, um, cannabis that he can compare his product with what's available online. And... Uh, so he bought a little jar that looked like um, a jar that was maybe an inch and a half tall and an inch and a half round with a screw on lid, you know, the push down and turn lid. And um, he got the package, opened it up, pushed down, turn, and when he took the lid off, the product was gone. There was nothing. He had paid the Ontario Cannabis Store and got an empty jar. So it's things like that that the LPs are doing. And then who's, how, how do they do the accountability on that? Obviously, their SOPs are failing them. But um, the fact remains that the LPs are not uh, as careful with their end results as a craft grower. And so what that brings us to is our first uh, study from Statistics Canada that reports that there are 578,000 new cannabis users in the last six months in its national cannabis survey. And according to that statistic and survey, 28% of users claim that they only purchase cannabis products from government sanctioned retailers, which, and that means that 72% of the more than 5 million Canadians ages 15 and up who reported recently using marijuana are looking to illegal sources, online dispensaries, unlicensed dispensaries, and dealers for cannabis product. And that's disconcerting given a recent U.S. study that examined product from 300 online CBD merchants and found 98% were non-compliant with at least one regulation. One CBD product tested 18.5 times the amount of allowable lead and that it had so much lead in it that that's on par with the Flint, Michigan water crisis, where if you don't know, uh, residents of Flint, Michigan haven't had drinkable water for years now. And so that amount of lead in one sampling of CBD is exactly why we need to have GPPs and CBD, uh, 
GPPs and SOPs in place for CBD and THC cannabis because whether or not you're focusing on a high THC strain or a high CBD strain, people are expecting safety and they want to be able to trust the person that they're purchasing their product from. And that's not happening in some of these larger facilities. And it could be because things are just getting overlooked. It could be because again, they're trying to produce too much too quickly, but uh, the facts are coming out and that's that these products are not, and, and these could be specifically from illegal sources as this survey cited that more people are are still using the black market but that's the problem with the black market is that they are not adhering to the same safety standards that are demanded by health canada and by the regulations that the cannabis community is now expected to adhere to And so that's why when people start questioning, well, what about the black market? Why is that still such a viable option for people? It's going to become a less and less viable option for people. And the growing trend is that more people are turning to legal sources. One of the reasons that they're looking for for the legal sources, of of course, is the, the quality that we've discussed already. But um, just everything, like my friend who opened up the package and there was nothing, nothing in the little jar. Um, so it's the quality, it's the, the quality of standard that you're using to produce the product, but also get it safely to your, to your customer. Um, unless people buying on the black market really know, personally know where that product is coming from, and who that product is coming from. If it's just somebody that's playing a middleman position, um, that product could be coming from who knows where. And I've been saying this since this whole CBD trend started and the, the vape pens, the consumer has no idea where that product is coming from. It could be coming from a country where they don't regulate they don't care if you have SOPs and they don't care about the, the quality of the product that's going out the back door. All they're caring about is, you know, selling and making money off of it. So the quality isn't, isn't important. So another recent study recognized that there's a growing trend and the agency that conducted the study asked 5,452 Canadians where they got the cannabis they used in the past three months. And about half, 53%, of the respondents reported obtaining cannabis from legal sources in the second and third quarters of 2019, compared with corresponding estimates from the same period in 2018, in which only 23% used the legal market to purchase cannabis. The percentages of consumers reported only obtaining cannabis legally from places like authorized retailers and online producers also grew to 28% from 10% one year earlier. So what that shows us is that as we've been discussing, the consumer is looking for more legal options. They don't want to have to risk everything that goes along with illicit illegal activity, which could be their job, their which is, leads into financial security. And nobody wants to risk that just for some cannabis when they don't have to. And so that leads us to the conclusion that the black market is becoming a shrinking concern. And there are three primary reasons that that currently is happening. 
The first is that the LPs and the hemp industry are going to end up pushing the black market out ultimately, for the most part. Will there always be a black market? I mean, potentially there will always be a black market. Look at any any nation that has legalized things. There's always going to be illicit activities going on, but the goal is to minimize that so that the legal market is the larger share. And the way that LPs are going to do that is with lobbying and pressure on the government and in essentially insisting that they are going to insisting that they are going to uh, take action against the black market and have law enforcement agencies more proactively seeking out these black market industries and shutting them down faster and faster. And hopefully the goal would be to shut them down as fast as they pop up. And the final reason that the black market is becoming less and less of a concern is because the, the consumer is recognizing that there's a lot of risks associated with a black market. So it's not just the lack of cleanliness in a facility. You also don't know who's growing the product, what they're adding into it, if they're adding anything into it. And that's why the fentanyl scare has been a big uh, issue in, in any of the black market drug associations, but especially in the cannabis market because there's really, obviously there's no need for fentanyl to ever come into contact with cannabis, but in the black market that can happen and would likely happen. And in a legalized market, that's not going to be the case. Whereas fentanyl in a black market is, it's a, a much higher probability that the product is going to be contaminated with something. And, and it really just depends on how severe that contamination is and, and what exactly it is contaminated with. Whereas with legalization in legal cultivations, there's really no opportunity for a contamination that severe to even occur. Yeah, between fentanyl and <clears throat> in, a, in an illegal um, situation or a, a black market situation, it could be grown with, um, you know, like just a, a dusty environment or if it's grown outside, it could have bird poop on it. Who knows? Like it's just, um, it's just a, I think it's people don't want to be involved in something that they don't know where it's coming from. And I think that's right across the board, right from, you know, growing tomatoes and lettuce. You want to know where it's coming from. You know, when they have those E. coli scares with lettuce that comes out of California and Mexico, it's because it's not being done, handled properly. So I think it transfers over to the cannabis market that fentanyl is one thing, but I mean, they could be putting baby powder in it. Who knows what could go into it? And I think people are aware of that and want to know where their product is coming from. Another large issue that has faced a large cannabis grower in Canada is Sundial. The Canadian marijuana company is facing two class action lawsuits filed in the United States by shareholders over hundreds of pounds of alleged unsellable cannabis. The latest suit charged that the company failed to disclose that one client, Vancouver-based Zenibus Global, returned more than 1,200 pounds of marijuana worth 1.9 million, which is 2.5 million Canadian, because it was contaminated with mold and parts of rubber gloves, and that's according to MarketWatch. So what can be taken away from this? Well, this is a pretty simple 
conclusion. And honestly, it's ridiculous that this even got past the quality control at Sundial. But this goes right back to your SOPs, which is your standard operating procedures. Before the product ever leaves your facility, there's supposed to be a protocol that, first of all, that product was clearly not tested or it was combined with a lot that did test positively and they were just trying to push it out and get rid of it. And that's your SOP protocol is supposed to be that each lot gets tested and that each lot is verified to be tested at, at various points. So you would test uh, if you had the lot in a bin, let's say you would test the top layer and you would test the middle layer. You wouldn't just test what was on top to make sure that the entire lot or that portion of product was testing positively across the board so that this exact scenario did not happen. And then as the product is leaving for shipping, obviously you don't test for rubber gloves being in your product, but that's, that's, such, a common, that's such a common sense error that it's really not even something that should have ever happened. But again, it comes back to your standard operating procedures and the protocols that you have in place for your employees to follow. Obviously, Sundial either didn't have the right SOPs in place as that product was being packaged for sale and packaged for shipment, or the employee had not been properly trained. So how to avoid this issue is better practices, better SOPs that explain that there should be no product that is contaminated in any way with either mold or rubber glove material. And the benefits of being a microcultivation instead of a massive company like Sundial with shareholders in the US and Canada is that you wouldn't have shareholders breathing down your neck and you actually care for the consumer and the product. And this is a marketing and branding nightmare for Sundial because not only does it show that their practices aren't good, but it makes it appear as though they don't care about the consumer and that they don't care about the actual product that they are releasing, that they're not growing from a place of moral and ethical standards, that it's really just coming down to the bottom line. I have been to a lot of cannabis conventions and one of the um, products that I've seen on display is a, is a bagging machine that the cannabis comes down a hopper and onto a chute. This sometimes looks a lot like a smaller conveyor belt. That's only, well, it depends on how big the facility is, but so it comes down a conveyor belt and it goes onto the top of this spinning kind of um, stainless steel surface. And on the sides of the stainless steel service, surface are these miniature hoppers that feed a plastic bag. And all of that can be done mechanically. They don't even have eyes on it. There might be one person sitting in a computer room that drives this um, equipment that's bagging this cannabis. And so for, I can see how mold might slip past a, um, a lab. If, you, if you're sending um, a 25 gram sample from your crop identification uh, lot, and you miss that little corner where some mold might be, I can see that sort of getting by. But if you're a hands-on grower, you're looking, you're, you're bagging your own crop. You're not putting it through a great big um, automated equipment so that you, you're not seeing the rubber gloves. If you're, if you're a craft grower, you're looking at your product a lot and you'll see the mold. You'll see um, rubber gloves in your, in your product. It's, to me, it's inexcusable that that could happen. Absolutely. 
And that's really, that's why it, it's somewhat, it's a little bit comical. And that's what it really comes down to, just making sure that your SOPs are in order. And it also highlights why being a microcultivation is so much more honestly productive because you're dealing hands-on with the product, the consumer's getting a product, and an individual is benefiting, not a giant corporation. And you might not be making, you know, when you look at the stock prices on these um, large corporations, they're, they're saying they're going to make $4 billion in a year or $900 million in a year, whatever it is they're saying. Um, who could possibly spend that kind of money anyway? Well, not even that. <laughs> when you look at $900 million, you're not seeing all of the shareholders and all of the the CEOs and the COOs and the chief financial officer and then all the people that have to benefit from that. So at the end of the day, even the CEOs of these companies, now maybe the founders are making very, very hefty sums of money, but everybody else involved is making pretty much an average salary, especially when you look at people who are actually hands-on handling the plant. So then what is the motivation for them to care if there's rubber gloves in the, in the product? They, you know, what do they care at $20 an hour? It's, it's, um, it's just unfortunate that, that this is the, paint, the picture that is being painted of the cannabis market. And it's really not, it's not how it's supposed to be. No. You know, it's, cannabis should not be something that is a corporate money-making scheme. It should be craft growers who care about the product, who are educating consumers. It should be a more uh, boutique and craft market. So now we're going to move on to yet another example of how a LP didn't meet the standards expected. So according to uh, one of our sources that we researched for today, one of three lots from Canada's Aurora Cannabis, which they won a contract to supply Italian market in July has been canceled. And Italy's Minister of Health explained in a parliamentary inquiry this week, citing non-compliance with European good manufacturing practices standards. In July, Alberta-based Aurora was the sole winner of the contract after all bidders were disqualified. The tender to supply the Italian market consisted of three different cannabis lots, Lot one, which was 320 kilograms of high THC cannabis. Lot two, which was 40 kilograms of similar THC and CBD content. And lot three, which was 40 kilograms of high CBD cannabis. Most of the Italian supply is being imported from the Netherlands produced by Bedrocan, the only Canadian company from which the SCFF currently imports is Aurora. In a, in a reply republished October 31st, the Minister of Health said that the lot rejected by the SCFF did not comply with European good manufacturing specifications. The reason given out was the stability studies to define the shelf life of the product was not carried out. So this is yet another example of how an LP is, they're just allowing things to slip through the cracks ultimately. And this would never this would never be allowed in a pharmaceutical company. And so the fact that cannabis companies are not adhering to the standards that they are being mandated to is, it's, it's frustrating, but it's also honestly to be expected. Because again, as we just discussed with Sundial, they have so many moving parts in these big companies that the $20 person who's handling the cannabis with the rubber gloves doesn't care 
as much about it as somebody who is a craft grower who's passionate about the cannabis, passionate about the consumer being educated on the strain and the product, and ultimately wants that person to have a good experience so they come back as a repeat customer, whether they're using recreationally or medicinally. And so this is exactly why you need to have your GPPs and your SOPs or your GMPs, which good production practices and good manufacturing practices are the same, and your standard operating practices and procedures in order. Because whether you're selling internationally, nationally, or locally, these standards are still expected. And the, the more you consistently meet and exceed the standards, the more consistently you're going to build a consumer and customer base that buys your product time and time again. And every time one of these LPs has a massive slip up like this, it does the same thing that an E. coli does, E. coli scare does for a lettuce producer. All of a sudden, the lettuce that people were buying from California, now all of a sudden they don't want to buy it from California anymore. They're willing to buy it from Mexico or another producer who, or even they'll just cut out lettuce entirely. And then not only is that bad for the industry, it's bad for everyone else. So that's why as micro cultivators, we really need to focus on producing the best quality products that we possibly can and adhering to the GPPs and the SOPs because where the LPs keep failing, that just leaves room for the micro grows to step in and to take over that consumer base that no longer trusts the LP. That's, <clears throat> I was agreeing with you there that it's, it's really important to maintain the quality yourself so that you are creating a, a return customer for your, for your product. Absolutely. And so now we're going to move on to some progress. So we know that Alberta and British Columbia have already switched their model from having just a short, a few amount of, of retail facilities for cannabis to their now licensing uh, essentially anyone who makes an application and meets the criteria. And we discussed how Saskatchewan is following suit. And so now, the Ford government has blamed the slow rollout of stores on a shortage of adult use products. Ontario currently has only two dozen licensed stores versus the more than 300 in Alberta and 157 in British Columbia. And the Cannabis Council, which represents 35 federally licensed cultivators, also urged Ford to reverse a policy that precludes licensed producers from operating more than a single cannabis retail store at one of their production facilities. The letter calls on Ontario to immediately allow producers to open cannabis retail stores at production facilities, a promise the Ontario Premier made after being elected but has yet to deliver on. This is excellent news for all Ontario cultivators and ultimately cultivators in provinces that are still determining how they're going to allow retail outlets and the selling of cannabis to continue, such as New Brunswick, Quebec, Nova Scotia. And this is excellent news for all of us because as more provinces come on board with this more open-minded application-based process, then it's setting a tone for a federal legislation that says that ultimately the same way that anyone can apply for microcultivation, as long as you meet these requirements, the same would be said for a retail facility. It won't be a lottery anymore with a limited amount. And this is ultimately 
what we at Grow Your Own Cannabis suspected early on, that Ontario is feeling the pressure to allow more free market aspects for cannabis outlets and retail facilities. And ultimately, it's going to, I think that that's what we're going to see across Canada, is that as legalization, as the newness wears off, we're going to see more and more opportunity for people to get into ancillary markets. So not only could you be cultivating, but you could be selling what you're cultivating at your facility. And, and there will be nuances of this that have to be uh, finessed. And that's because if you were a micro cultivator and you also had a retail facility, as a micro cultivator, you're limited to your 600 kilograms. So that you can't have a store that's open for six months of the year and then not open the next six months. So we do still have to see some kinks get worked out in these details, but I think ultimately there are some solutions that I already see the writing on the wall of how these things are going to get worked out. And it will be things like you can start going into processing and then since the processing is limited to each product is only allowed to have a maximum of 10 milligrams of thc well then you could have that kind of product in your retail facility all year round whereas while you're only allowed to sell 600 kilograms of flour you would probably be able to sell a much larger amount of uh, edibles provided they were only displayed while their shelf life was valid but I think that's the sort of result that we're going to see is that more microcultivations are also going to be granted uh, specific licenses that allow them to sell what they have in addition to other products that they could create. And that's a hopeful. <clears throat> we, we hope that's the way it goes. And wouldn't it be lovely to be able to know that you got in on the ground floor, you're a cultivator, you're able to do edibles and, and, um, in topicals and oils and uh, then when this next version folds uh, unfolds you'll be right there at the at the leading edge and yes this is speculatory yeah. but what we are seeing in the market is it's an educated guess you could put it that way where we believe that this is the direction that the market's going to move in because it just makes sense that if you're going to have a store, you have to be able to keep that store consistently supplied. Uh, and there's no reason that, that Health Canada wouldn't want your business to be successful. So in that sense, some of these things will have to be uh, revisited and worked out as more retail facilities yeah, come yeah. out. But, but it's definitely exciting. And I think that's what we want to convey most of all is that you're in the industry now. If you're already going through the process of getting your micro cultivation license, you're more than 10, 20, probably 50 steps ahead of someone who hasn't even started the process. And so all of this news should be very exciting for you because not only are LPs falling short of, of the standards that are expected from them, which leaves room for micro cultivators to step in, but it's also we're seeing the expansion process happen in real time. And, and that's very exciting for everybody who's involved in the industry. Have you met Mary Jane? Thanks so much for listening. If you have any questions about today's topics or the cannabis industry in general, feel free to send an email to jewel at cwcultivations.com. That's C-W-C-U-L-T-I. 
V-A-T-I-O-N-S dot com.